As we stand here for the reading of God's word, hear the word of the Lord from Colossians 2, verses 6 through 8. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. And see to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. Would you pray with me? Lord, we come to you today, and we offer ourselves to you as our Lord. We ask that you would give us ears in these moments to hear what you would have to say to us. Give us eyes to be able to see your will and your way in the world. Give us the feet that are ready to go and to live out your way in this world. We offer ourselves to you today as your children, your beloved ones, thanks to your son and his gift of his death on the cross. We love you and we pray all this in your name. Amen. Friends, please be seated. It is good to be with you this morning. I speak on behalf of our whole college ministry when I say that we are so excited for the chance to lead you in worship this morning. It will not surprise you one bit to uh, to hear that I am so proud to get to be the the college pastor of this group of students. I love this group so much. They've meant so much to me over the last four years. And it's a privilege not just to work with them, but a privilege for all of us to come stand before you today. It's one of our favorite Sundays of the year. This morning, I'm going to step out of my comfort zone a little bit and talk about gardening. (laughs) I do not have a green thumb. If I ever do, it's probably because I just finished painting my face green for the Baylor Bears. But I still think I know a thing or two about gardening. You see, when you plant a garden, the first thing that you want to do is you want to, to pull up the weeds. Okay, but you can't just pull the weeds from the top. You, you got to get your hands down in the dirt, all right? Under the surface, you got to really pull up the roots. Because only then, only once you've uprooted, can you plant the flowers. This way, you make space for the new roots to grow down in the soil. See, both rooting and uprooting are essential parts of gardening. If one is done without the other, then the process is incomplete. We know Paul must have have known something about gardening too. In our text for this morning, he challenges the Colossians to continue to live their lives in the Lord. He elaborates through a series of four images, but the key one, the most vivid image, is that they are to root themselves in Christ. But then... Immediately in verse 8, Paul moves on to a warning. Let me read it again. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. So this warning suggests that if the Colossians fail to ward off this hollow and deceptive philosophy, that their efforts to root themselves and Christ will have been in vain. And so we might reframe Paul's words like this. Root yourselves in Christ and uproot yourself from the ways of the world. Rooting and uprooting 
are equally important to the journey of discipleship. Rooting is our discipleship into the way of Jesus. Uprooting is unlearning the ways of the world. We may often hear more about rooting. Uprooting can, can seem like a nebulous task. And so today, I want to focus especially on uprooting before we move to rooting. Let me suggest to you this, this morning that the basis of uprooting is learning to pay attention to the ways that we are being discipled by our culture. See, most of us think of discipleship as a church program that we enroll in, such as Sunday school or a Bible study or an accountability group. And when we are there, we are being discipled. And then we go home and we come back the next week and we pick up our discipleship again. The problem with this framework is that it pretends that we are more in control of our lives than we actually are. When in reality, you and I are constantly being shaped every moment of our lives, even without our awareness or our permission. As we, we go throughout our lives, we're, we're reading the news, we're driving around town, we're, we're buying groceries, we're conversing with our coworkers, we're, we're planning vacations, we're shopping, we're looking at dinner menus constantly all throughout, we are receiving messages. Messages about what the good life looks like. In just a two-hour March Madness game, we receive all kinds of messages. The Capital One Venture Card will reward you with dining and entertainment. The key, you will be happy. Uber Eats wants you to eat local. Because when you do, you will be happy. HBO Max has is, is rolled out a new lineup of insanely amazing shows. And if you watch them, you too will be happy. These messages paint a picture of the good life for us and where we might find it. And look, we all, we all know how advertising works, okay? We weren't born yesterday. But the point I, I want to make is that in these moments, we are being discipled. We are being shaped to see the world in a certain way. We're being told a story about how the world works and how fulfillment is found. James K.A. Smith talks about how these messages we receive are cultural liturgies. They're aspects of our culture that seek to form us into their way of life. Any good business person knows that you don't sell a product, you sell a brand. If you sell a product, you get money, but if you sell a brand... You get followers. Followers are much more valuable because they come with loyalty and they come with passion. And Smith suggests that this is what uh, the cultural institutions of our day are after. That they are vying for our passions. That each brand is seeking to persuade us that they have the secret about how to live the good life. And their hope is that we will believe them. And in doing so, we will become their disciples. So what this means is that when you step into Sunday school for discipleship, that your discipleship has not been on pause for a week. Now we have received a million messages over the past week seeking to disciple us into the way of the world. And thus our discipleship to Jesus is really, really counter-discipleship. And so we come together 
We're reminded of the true and the real vision of the good life that comes not from consumption, entertainment, and power and prestige, but through knowing Christ. And we need these reminders regularly, badly, more than we know, because we do not walk into this building as a blank slate waiting to be formed. We have already been formed. And so counter-discipleship helps uproot us from the ways of the world and root us back in the ways of Christ. So where do we begin this uprooting? If we want to be discipled into the way of Jesus, we need to to learn to pay attention to the ways we are being discipled by our culture. And this is much easier said than done. Paul warned the Colossians that they were up against a deceptive philosophy. What seemed innocent in reality was, was far from it. And this is our challenge too. Many of the ways that we are being discipled are subliminal and, and under the radar. They're, they're hidden in activities that, that seem neutral, but in reality they are shaping us to become citizens of another kingdom. Let's take a deep dive into an example, okay? Let's think about the smartphone, all right? Is it possible that your smartphone is discipling you? Surely not, right? This is just a conglomeration of metals that, that fit in your pocket. Using your phone seems like such a, a neutral activity, and that's, that's actually why it's so deceptive, is that technology doesn't just help us complete tasks or enjoy our life. It invites us to believe a story about the good life. Angela Gorell writes, The dominant cultural narrative and its subplot resists Christian visions of flourishing life. Rather than presenting a Christian vision of true life, this story, the story of technology, provides malformed convictions about what a good life is. In other words, when we use our phones, we are being formed into an alternate story in ways that often go unnoticed. Let's use an example. One of the things that we love about our our phones is how they help us maximize efficiency. We live in a busy world that asks more and more of us all the time. We keep trying to cram more events and more responsibilities into less and less time. And into this world comes the gospel of the iPhone. That never again does a moment have to be wasted. Are you stuck in a long line? That's just time to check your email. Do you need to drive all the way across town? Sounds like a great time to call your mom. Are you, are you waiting for somebody to, to show up? That's what Facebook is for. Do you need to walk somewhere? I wonder if anyone has liked my post lately. Is there even the, the slightest lull in, in, a, in a conversation? Man, I, I wonder what the weather's going to look like tomorrow. Thanks to the smartphone, you can be liberated from unproductivity. The gospel of the smartphone is that never does a moment of your life ever again have to fail to be unproductive. Every second can be leveraged for productivity. And on one level, we can be thankful for this, all right? Look, if I can knock out a couple things on my to-do list while I wait for somebody to show up, what's not to love? Productivity is not inherently bad. At the core, productivity is really just bringing chaos into order. And at first glance, that seems neutral, if not positive. Uh, A more efficient life can mean a more organized life, which can mean more time for the people and the things that matter most to us in life. And so if it just stopped there, this would be positive. But 
when all of a sudden now any moment can be a productive moment, where is the line between being efficient and being enslaved to efficiency? A lot of research has been done on how the smartphone is changing our brains through the field of neuroplasticity, and the results are, are frightening. In a recent survey, 77% of young adults answered yes to when nothing is occupying my attention, the first thing I do is reach for my phone. But it's not just a young person problem. 86% of Americans say they check their email and social media accounts constantly and that it leads to increased stress in their lives. In his book, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, John Mark Comer writes about how our attention span is quickly shrinking. In the year 2000, the average attention span was 12 seconds. It has now shrunk to 8 seconds in a span of just 21 years. Do you know whose attention span is 9 seconds? The goldfish. Congrats, everyone. We are losing to the goldfish. And what this means practically is, is that after eight seconds of nothing, that we get jittery, that we need a dopamine fix, and our next release is only a screen tap away. So there's nothing wrong with being efficient, but once every pause in our life becomes an opportunity to check our messages, in all likelihood, we may have become enslaved to efficiency. Let's contrast this with Jesus. Walking through town, moving through the crowds, never in a hurry, just a settled, steady pace. He feels a brush behind him, and it's not his phone vibrating in his back pocket. It's a hand extended, reaching out. And he stops, and he turns around, welcomes the interruption. He says, who touched me? And a woman comes, comes forward, and all Jesus' attention is locked on her. He's fully present with her, li- listening to her cry for help, bursting with compassion. You see, Jesus was a lot of things, but productive in the modern sense of the world was not one of them. His life was littered with interruptions, and yet he always had attention to offer. So the question, I think, is this. What if our phones are discipling us into a way of existing in the world that values efficiency over availability? If efficiency is your master, then people will always be your nuisance. And that's not the Jesus way. The Jesus way is availability over productivity. Paul's warning was about a deceptive philosophy, and and he was right. Here we have an activity that seems neutral, checking your email. But when done 30 times throughout the day, at some point the activity starts forming us into a completely different way of life. So if we want to be discipled into the way of Jesus, we need to pay attention to the ways that we are being discipled by our culture. Let's look at another way, one more example of how our phones form us, the realm of entertainment. This time we'll broaden beyond the smartphone, just talk about screens in in general. I should probably note, by the way, that I'm no Luddite, okay? I love technology. I'm on social media too. I don't plan on unplugging my Wi-Fi later today. It's going to stay on. 
Our solution is probably going to have more to do with moderation than elimination. Uh, What's really most important is that we're learning to see the ways that we are being formed. So let's let's talk about entertainment. As our, our lives have become busier and our calendars ever more stretched, more and more we long for time where nothing is expected from us. And entertainment is our best coping mechanism. It allows us to just step outside of our own world for a while, forget about our problems, and step into the world of someone else. And so whether it's a a nine-second video of a cat playing the piano or a nine-episode binge-watching session of WandaVision, entertainment allows us to leave our world behind and just be, just veg. Now, just, just like inter- efficiency, there's nothing wrong with entertainment. Every culture since the beginning has sought out entertainment in one form or another. Entertainment at its core is really just celebrating the creativity of other people. It's a chance to enjoy God's world, and, and that's, that's actually what he would want for us. But today, perhaps for the first time in human history, we, we live in a world of hyper-entertainment. I, I can't even begin to count how many streaming options you have available to you today. Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, Disney Plus, Paramount, HBO Max. There's a new one that pops up literally every day. Netflix alone has has so much content on its platform that if you wanted to watch everything that was there, it would take you four years. And that's if they're not updating it, which of course they are. And that's of course if if you never slept, which you probably should. In fact, when the the CEO of, of Netflix was asked what their biggest competitor was, his answer was sleep. With all this content, some today even confess anxiety as they wonder how they're going to have time to watch all the shows that they want to watch. And there's some major irony there, okay? The activity that we chose to calm us down ends up doing the opposite. So again, there's nothing wrong with with entertainment but the question is, how is, it, how is it shaping us? Entertainment places the self at the center. It leverages all the resources on the outside for our therapeutic benefit. And in doing, doing so, it conditions us to, to believe that we should get what we want. In fact, we deserve it. But what happens, what happens in real life when we don't get what we want? See, Jesus, again, knew knew this feeling all too well. His arrest and crucifixion were the most obvious examples. In the garden, he he prayed that his father would take away his cup, that he wouldn't have to die on the cross. But then he he prayed that phrase, not my will, Lord, but yours. There's nothing wrong with entertainment. But in a world where it's, it's always one click away The clear and present danger is that we would move from enjoying entertainment to being enslaved by it. That we become so focused on our needs being met, on on getting our me time, that we become really good at blocking out the needs of others. And so I, I wonder, I wonder, are we forgetting how to pray? Not my will, Lord, but yours. Are we neglecting our vocation? Of service. Jesus said, I have come not to be served, but to serve. And yet the gospel of entertainment says, once your desires are met, then all will be well. The more you watch, the happier you'll be. But Jesus knew the secret. Fulfillment comes not through getting what we want, 
but through giving our life away for the other. So what if, the, what if the entertainment industry is discipling us into a way of existing in the world that values gratification over service? The Jesus way is service over gratification. Once again, another activity that, that seems neutral, watching Netflix, can in reality turn us into a completely different way of life. So if we want to be discipled into the way of Jesus, we need to pay attention to the ways we are being discipled by our culture. When the iPhone first came out in 2007, it was introduced by the slogan, this changes everything. Some saw that as arrogance, but like it or not, the slogan was true. The world was full of new possibilities and also new consequences. Sean Palmer is the first president of Facebook now he calls himself a conscientious objector to social media because he knows firsthand what it does to our, our brains. He talks about how social media is actually designed to exploit a vulnerability in human psychology that every time we get a new like, a new post, a new notification, you get a little dopamine hit. He shared that at, at meetings at, at Facebook, they revolved around the question, how do we consume as much of their time and conscious attention as possible? Because with our time and attention comes our money. His final assessment was this, God only knows what it's doing to our children's brains. President of Facebook. So when Apple said, this changes everything, I, I have to wonder if they were including the human brain under the umbrella of everything. And again, while technology is not evil, it can do some good, the point is that it operates on a hollow and deceptive philosophy that what seems neutral can in reality have great power over us. So if we want to be discipled into the way of Jesus, we need to pay attention to the ways we are being discipled by our culture. If you want to be a gardener, you have to learn to uproot the weeds. If today you're, you're sensing you need to do some uprooting, I encourage you with a couple practical things by way of personal testimony. Turn off notifications. Helps a lot. Find the, the Screen Time app on your iPhone if you have one of those. It will reveal both the ugly truth, but also allow you to create some limits and parameters for yourself. On top of this, a trusted friend is, is someone who can speak the truth. We all need a trusted friend who can speak the truth and love about how our own habits are showing up in, in real time. I hope we all have somebody in our life who, who, who feels the right to do that and say those things, say the truth in love. Uprooting is critical, but you can't just uproot that you also eventually got to get around to rooting as well. Because you see, being rooted in, in Christ, this is Paul's chief image in our passage in Colossians 2. It's, it's how we live our lives in Christ. We root our lives in, in him. But then Paul goes on to say that we, we are built up in him. So we get the, the image of, of a building being constructed with Christ as the foundation. Both of these images, the planting and the being built up, suggest that our lives should be an extension of Jesus' own life. That we should grow out of him, so to speak. So we might think that this means we should center our lives around that age-old question, what would Jesus do? Charles Sheldon popularized this phrase in the late 1800s. You've bought the t-shirt, you've worn the bracelet, you've liked the Facebook post. The idea is a really nice one. It's, 
It's the idea that in any particular situation, if we're unsure what to do, all we need to do is consider what Jesus would do, how, how we would react, what he would say. And once we know what Jesus would do, then we'll know what we should do too. There's only one problem. You're not Jesus. The WWJD strategy assumes that knowing what Jesus would do is the hard part. Once we know, the doing comes easy. But I, I think this is backwards. See, the knowing is the easy part. I, I think most of us know what Jesus would do in most cases. The hard part is the doing it. Think of it this way. Once you get your, your second vaccine, imagine that you, you, you uh, decide it's time to pick up an old hobby, basketball. All right? It's been a little while, but you're feeling inspired by the national champion Baylor Bears. So you head down to the local gym, you dust off your old sneakers, and soon enough you find yourself in a game of pick-up five-on-five basketball. The other team has the ball. They make a cross-court pass, but you see it coming. You, you make the steal. You head in the other direction. No one is standing between you and the basket. And in that moment, a question pops into your head. What would Mark Vidal do? You don't have to think about it long. You know what Mark Vidal would do. You know he would go for the 360 windmill dunk. This is your chance to be like Mark Vidal. And so you take your final step. You leap in the air. You spin around. You throw the ball down. When you wake up. When you wake up, the paramedics tell you you never got more than six inches off the ground. <laughs> the hard-earned lesson, just because you know what Mark Vidal would do, <laughs> doesn't mean you can do it too. See, knowing is, is easy, but, but doing, doing is the hard part. So you know what Jesus would do. But what makes us think that we can do it Two, see, WWJD leaves us with a, a naive confidence that somehow we're going to have the capacity in every situation to make the same in-the-moment decisions as Jesus. But experience proves this one wrong pretty quickly, am I right? Occasionally, sure. Regularly, consistently, no way. But as we start to become discouraged about our inability to do what Jesus did, we can make another error. And perhaps this one is even a little more dangerous we decide that if we'll rarely, if ever, be able to do what Jesus did, then why even try? And this comes from an honest place of, of self-assessment where we know that he is God and, and we are not. So we just need to accept that and rest in his grace, which is code for, I don't plan on changing. We know our flaws. We know the anger issue. We know the fears and insecurities we have. We know the wounds from our past. We know the ways that we are just downright stubborn. But we gave up on believing those changes, believing that we could change years ago. We can't just do what Jesus did, and so we'll just rest in his grace, which is code for, again, I don't plan on changing. And yet the promise of Scripture is that we can become like Jesus. Jesus himself said it. John 14, 12, he said, Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these. What's amazing is that Jesus seems a lot more optimistic about you and I than we are about ourselves. 
So can we do what Jesus did? Absolutely. But simply knowing what Jesus would do doesn't automatically mean we'll be able to do it too. So how do we get there? How do we get from A to B? Well, just like in basketball, the answer is training and practice. Paul said these words in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He said, train yourself to be godly. For physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for both the present life and the life to come. Behind every great basketball player, hours in the gym, in the weight room. Behind every great disciple are hours of training to become like Jesus. The weight room sessions don't get televised. But without them, what shows up on TV would never be possible. That's obvious when it comes to sports, but in reality, it was actually true of Jesus, too. Have you ever considered that Jesus had to train to do what he did? The stories we read about in the Gospels, the the inspirations of our WWJD moments, that those were the product of Jesus' training and preparation. In his book, The, The Spirit of the Disciplines, Dallas Willard makes this point. We forget, he says, that being the unique son of God clearly did not relieve Jesus of the necessity of a life of preparation that was mainly spent out of the public eye. Consider that we we know very little about the first 30 years of Jesus' life. And when his baptism finally inaugurated his, his ministry, what did he do right away? He went into the desert for 40 days to pray and to fast. Even when his ministry finally began, for large periods of time, he would go away to be by himself and to pray to the Father. And we've heard about Jesus' habits, but we don't often connect the dots between those actions that Jesus took and his ability to respond in the moment. But Dallas Willard does. He he says, no, these things are are connected, that Jesus' time alone with the Father, his, his time in obscurity... That was his preparation. It was his training to do what he did. And to say this is to affirm his full humanity without diminishing his divinity. This is the biggest reason why WWJD doesn't work, is that even Jesus trained to do what he did. So what makes us think that we can do what Jesus did without training? You say, look, Ryan, I've, I've tried to overcome my flaws. It's just too late. I tried. I I love that you tried, but have you trained? Because training comes through a a set of strategic practices. Mark Vidal didn't just wake up one day and he could do the 360 windmill dunk. He practiced. We won't wake up one day just fully able to imitate Jesus. We must practice too. And we practice by taking up a set of practices They're the same ones that Jesus himself took up. These practices are often called the the spiritual disciplines, but we might just as easily call them uh, the practices of Jesus. They include reading scripture, prayer, silence and solitude, fasting, confession, simplicity, Sabbath, just to name a few. All things that Jesus did, minus confession, all ways that Jesus trained, and all ways that we're going to need to train too if we want to become Like Jesus, if we're unwilling to take up these practices, it should not surprise us in the end if we don't look much like Jesus. 
But as we practice these practices, we can expect to become more and more like him. So Paul's words in Colossians 2, rooting and uprooting. First, we uproot ourselves from the ways of the world by paying attention to how we are being discipled by our culture. And then, rooting ourselves in Christ, becoming like Jesus by practicing his practices. So I'll leave you with this question today. In what ways do you need to uproot? And in what ways do you need to root? Would you pray with me? Lord, we love you and we thank you for your patience and grace towards us. We are so easily distracted. And yet you lavish your love and forgiveness on us time and time again. We thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your mercy and forgiveness. God, we want to live your way of life. We want to become more like you. Would you help us to pay attention to how we veered off the path? And would you help us to practice your way? In your name we pray. Amen.